Uh, any questions from last week on confession? As we looked at confession and absolution, um, similar, different uh, in some ways to uh, how the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaches, preaches confession and absolution. Obviously, certain similarities though um, between their practice, between our practice. You of course can do um, individual confession. It's just not very common. Although it seems to be more and more common. When I was a kid, I never heard of it. And I went to ask my pastor one time, and he said when he was growing up, they, he asked somebody for it, and they refused. They said, that's Roman Catholic, we're not going to do that. They um, must not have been very good Lutherans, or not have read the Book of Concord, where it clearly says we retain this practice. But uh, in any case, any thoughts, comments, questions about that? We lost Linda's video. I will put her back up. I think it's just the recording software. Oh, there. there she is. There she is. She's still with us. Yes. Now I'll pass around. Uh, pass around this evenings. I think I made enough copies. Oh, Linda, I need to email that to you. I forgot. Uh, and hopefully, it doesn't crash my computer. Okay. Um, I hope it doesn't crash my computer like last time. So tonight, well, any questions about confession, I should stop there and, and uh, pause. Okay, simple enough. Um, tonight we're talking about the Lord's Supper, which is arguably the most, I guess you would say, controversial part of Luther's small catechism. Um, obviously a big difference uh, from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod compared to other Lutheran churches or even compared to other uh, other Christians about the Lord's Supper and what we believe and what difference uh, that makes. So that's why you save the most controversial subject for last. That way there's no class next week to ask any questions about it. So we <laughs> just go our own way, right? We don't talk about it again. But uh, So tonight we're talking about the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to just add this and send it off. Um, which is one of the accusations of Luther in the Reformation is that he's not reforming enough. So uh, obviously it starts off, kind of kicks off in 1517, and then all of these things happen in the next 15, 20 years. Other reformers who are more, uh, well, we would say radical, they might say biblical, but other reformers who are a little bit more reformed and reforming things farther than Luther say, no, it's really just a symbol. Luther's kind of holding on to his old medieval superstition that Jesus is really, truly present uh, in, in the body and the blood, uh, in, with, and under the bread and wine, right? So from the very beginning, this is, uh, this is one of the more controversial issues, even in the Reformation, dividing, Ro uh, dividing Luther not only from the Roman Catholic Church on the one hand, but also from the rest of how how Protestants kind of tended to go on the other hand. Um, so if I could ask this question and just throw it out there generally, what do most Christians think is happening in communion in the Lord's Supper? Um, what's actually happening and why would you bother doing it? Hopefully those questions make sense. Are you talking about non-Lutherans or... Christians, uh, yeah, I guess non-Lutherans, so I guess kind of American Christians, more broadly, generally American Protestants, although if you want to speak for Lutherans, you can certainly do that. 
Sharon, I invite you to speak on behalf of Luke. Please do it. You have a good pedigree. No. Well, I just think Christians in general, I, it seems to me it's just remembering right. uh, God's supper with his, right before he was crucified. Right. Remembering it. Right. And, and that's probably one of the key elements is a, it's a memorial meal, remembering what happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, Jesus actually says this, this do in remembrance of me, right? So there's good biblical precedent for that aspect of it. And Lutherans will not deny that at all, that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Christ did for us, and we're remembering that last supper. We'll just also say that it's more than that, right? It's more than just memory or history or more than thinking, thinking of what happened in the past. Um, do we have memorial meals, remembrance meals in our culture very much? Is Thanksgiving a memorial meal or remembrance meal? Do you think about Abe Lincoln on Thanksgiving or do you just think about the football game? <laughs> the turkey. The turkey. Right. You just think about how it's going to put you to sleep, right? Um, it's all about the pie. It's all about the pie. There we go. Right, right. And the calories don't count on the national holiday or a church potluck, right? So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that culturally we have very many of these anymore, these kind of memorial remembrance meals. I could be wrong. If anybody thinks of any, um, shout it out. But um, the Israelites, of course, obviously had that with the Passover celebration. That was explicitly to remember um, what they had gone through in Egypt and how God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, right? And so uh, there's even that section of a think it's Deuteronomy, but it could be the end of Exodus where it says, your child will ask, mom, dad, why are we doing this? And you will tell them it is because we did this thing, right? So we could say the same thing about the Lord's Supper, um, that why are we doing it? Well, it's because on the night when he was betrayed, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took bread, uh, and he said, this do it in remembrance of me. So remembering what happened, his betrayal, all of the events of Holy Week, um, and what, what did we say? We switched to divine service too on Sunday. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're remembering it, and we're proclaiming his death until he comes again. So it is a memorial meal. We would also say it's, it's more than that. Um, other thoughts on, on um, what it is for American Christians, generally, perhaps Lutherans and specifically, or if you wanted to swing to the other side of the theological spectrum and say, what is it for the Roman Catholic Church? Or how would your Roman Catholic friends describe what's happening in the Lord's Supper? I, I think that most of my friends that I've had conversations with that are Christians, but they are different denominations, just view it as a, um, they believe that they sin and that communion is a method by which they can receive of forgiveness uh-huh. and they formally um, I think they put a lot of emphasis on on that part of the ritual yeah um, where we think it's a lot more than that right right um, but you said many of them would still say it's a method of forgiving sins right yeah. Yeah. I, 
maybe this is not the only time they confess their sins is when they're having communion and they okay sure right i mean i i have friends who feel that way and they don't understand uh they don't also believe that it is the body and blood right lord jesus christ Right, so so you're saying they would say it's symbolic, but it's also a method of forgiving sins. Um, yes. Which is interesting, because um, I think a lot of people would... And this is where sometimes um, Lutherans and Lutherans online... You should never talk to a Lutheran online. You shouldn't talk to anyone online. Talk to people in person. Um, Lutherans online will talk uh, a really big game about how bad other Protestants are. But sometimes uh, there is a deep... Even if they think it is symbolic, there's still a deep reverence for communion and what's happening there, um, right? Sometimes it is very, it becomes very irreverent. And this was not, this was very obvious during the pandemic um, when among a group of Lutherans, no less, people who do believe in the real presence, A, they were doing virtual communion, which we don't really have time to talk about tonight, but we could get into that whole snafu. And then B, they were, there were a group of pastors on some Facebook group chat and this somebody did what they should never do, which is screenshot it and then send it out into the internet. And now we're all talking about it here and I shouldn't even be sharing about it. But they were saying, um, I guess it's a public, is it sin? I don't know, it wasn't a good thing. They were saying, what's the strangest thing you've seen somebody use on Zoom for communion? You know? Oh my. So not, oh yeah, my. Not, a, not wine and bread, but, oh but uh, Cheez-Its and Coke. Which is not communion, right? Which is not reverent. And that was among people who theoretically, again, in theory, believe in the real presence of, of Christ. And it becomes very irreverent. Um, whereas there are other churches, Protestant churches, who would, you know, say it's a symbol, but are going to treat it far more reverently than allowing or permitting people to use Coke and cheeses type of thing for communion. Um, so there's a wide spectrum, but then there's also a lived kind of experiential how do people approach it. So if people think it's symbolic but also a means of forgiving sin, well, you're halfway to the kingdom there, right? Um, that you're getting that the, the, the life of the thing is in its blood, and the blood actually is what is forgiving sin, like in the sacrificial system. Um, any other kind of opening thoughts on others? Uh, or what about moving to Roman Catholics or Lutherans? Somebody should still speak for Lutherans. So... What I remember from confirmation class and also four years in a Catholic high school uh, is that, and this to me was structured like the number one differentiator between the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, other than intercession of the saints, uh-huh. is their view of communion being transubstantiation. Yes. And ours would be consubstantiation. The difference being that when they take the Eucharist, it is the body and blood of Jesus, and that is not bread and wine up there. It is just Jesus. Whereas right. we would say it is both at the same time. Correct. So <laughs> we could really get in a rabbit hole that we brought up the transubstantiation <laughs> issue, but it is kind of relevant. So. Um, have you guys who were used to be Catholic heard of transubstantiation, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> anybody know their Aristotle very well, or want to get into a long discussion about Aristotelian metaphysics and what's going on? 
So substance and accidents, right? Uh, a thing's substance, you might say the substance of a human being, their nature or their essence is one thing, but the accidents, how tall that person is, right? Uh, or what kind of hair they have, whether it's straight or curly or whatever, those are all accidents, they're accidental to them. You could change the color of their hair, for example, and they'd still be a human, right? Um, imagine a sheep, a really happy sheep, frolicking along the hill. He's very uh, joyful, but then he dies, right? Okay, well, the spirit of sheepness has left the poor little sheep. And now all that's left are his accidents, his body and whatever else. So the Roman Catholic view would be saying that you have the substance of bread and wine are now gone through the consecration of the elements and the substance of Christ's body and blood have come in. And that's all that's left is the substance of Christ's body and blood under the accidents of bread and wine. Now, many people say Lutherans believe in consubstantiation, which means that the substance of bread and wine and the substance of Christ's body and blood are together present. Um, that's kind of true in one way, and it's not impossible, but we also tend to not answer that question about the exact makeup, makeup the exact metaphysical reality of what's happening in communion. We just say, and Luther says this, I think it's helpful, because it's not specific. He says it's the body and blood of Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine. And if you press somebody on what in, with, and under means, they'll be like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus says he's there, and we trust him that he's there. You know. Um, what do you say to people who call it cannibalism? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously. People yes. ask that question. You know, why are you doing that? Why are you eating Christ? Because he told us to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it could be as yeah. simple as that, right? He it says take and be, eat. Yeah, um, there is the accusation of uh, what do they call it? Capernatic eating. That kind of it is kind of a local um, physical presence, and we would say, well, it's a it's a real presence. It's a true presence. Christ's really present, but it's not a presence in the same way as kind of a cannibalistic eating, right? And what exactly is the difference? I don't really know that I can weigh in on that. Hmm. So, uh, like, people say, well, th so they accuse the first Christians of that, right? Yeah, Which I, is one argument of yeah. them saying, well, if they accuse the first Christians of being cannibals, if if the earliest Christians thought it's just a symbol, we're, mm -hmm. we're only remembering, it's mere remembrance, they would have said that. Right, and that would have quelched the thoughts of cannibalism pretty quickly. Right, um, they didn't, and so how do you respond to that? What exactly is the difference? I don't know that I can articulate that, but pe do people hear that? That it's kind of mm -hmm. cannibalism, yeah. okay? Or how does Christ like last for 2,000 years at the altar? Like, how does his body last 2,000 years? Okay, well, I have weird friends, okay. Yeah, no, those are good questions, those are really yeah. good questions because that is what the Reformed Church, so more Reformed churches in general, Protestants who aren't Lutheran, will say that Christ's body, Christ's human body is at the right hand of the Father after ascending into heaven. Then they would say he cannot um, be in all of the altars around the entire globe at all the places at all the same time. Right? They say his body is contained to the right hand of the Father in heaven. His human body. We would say that his 
his his divine nature contributes certain qualities to his human nature, even his body, that allow him to be present in all places at all times. Right. It right. isn't this like we're trying to put into like physical boxes that we, with human physical brains and conceptions of physical metaphysics, can, we're trying to put something that is far beyond those boxes into yes. the boxes that we can conceive. Right. Like even Jesus had human nature fully. That is not all that Jesus was. Right. Yeah. And so, so that argument of how can he be everywhere, how can he be throughout time, the argument the Lutherans will take on the on the Christological points of the plane about Jesus is that his divine nature actually gives certain qualities to his human nature that makes it different than you or I. I'll right. buy that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll buy that. That sounds good, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, there is a point, there is an element, you want to explain things as much as is possible within the limits of Scripture, but there is a point of mystery where you just say, that's I, a mystery. I believe it. I don't know. I, yeah, I believe it I because it's God. Right. I can't fully understand it, but right. we should try and explain it as much as possible. So in general, the Roman Catholic Church will say we'll explain a little too much in terms of transubstantiation and right. the exact metaphysical method by which Jesus is present, I'll put it that way. Um, and that relies on an Aristotelian understanding of, of nature, which maybe is Aristotle's right. Substance and accident seems like a pretty good theory. What explains why one bunny is really fat and brown and the other bunny is really small and white? They both share the same bunny substance, but different accidents, right? Or you have tables that share in the same quality of tableness, but they're really different. One is made of a different kind of wood, one's made of metal, anyway. Um, that could be right, but they're explaining too much. The Eastern Orthodox Church, anybody have any good Eastern Orthodox friends? Um, and they're really good at saying it's a mystery and washing their hands of the issue. And they'll say, that's a Western problem. You Westerners, we here in the East, we just trust God in a way that you don't. And they're kind of right about that. That's a good place. thing. <laughs> right, yeah. So in Eastern Orthodoxy, if you look at the growth, Eastern Orthodoxy has been growing. Um, it's a, I think it's almost an outlier in terms of churches. It's one of the few church bodies in America to be growing. And I think there's there's that's part of the reason why is in an age in which wants to, to really nail down every problem. Well, it's been that way for four or five hundred years. They tend to get away from that problem better than we in the Western Church do. Because obviously, in, even in the Lutheran Church, we're part of the general Western stream of the Church, going back a thousand years to the the, the Great Schism in 1056, right? In any event, um, but yeah, the the the, the cannibalistic, cavernatic eatings. I think it's at Capernaum where they talk about eating Jesus' body and blood. It's, I think that's the John six discourse from John yeah, chapter six. A lot of them left then. A lot of his followers left. Right. Any other opening thoughts on, on communion? You know, um, I've, I've learned a long time ago that, that when man tries to understand all of God, you're going to come up short. I mean, the, the, and you might as well learn that. Right, right. And, and all I know is I have faith that when Christ said, this is my body, uh-huh, this is my blood. I don't understand how it turns into that or what it does, but it, right. if he says it does, that's another mystery that God has given us. Right. That I'll, I'll learn later. Yeah. About all that. Right. You'll learn in glory. But for right now, <laughs> I believe it. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and, and that, that idea of just taking Jesus' word, this is my body, this is my blood, and allowing, I heard someone say, say it one time this way, allowing Jesus to be God mm-hmm. at the Last Supper. So if I gave you a cup of wine and said, this is my blood, that wouldn't do anything <laughs> because I'm not God. But God can literally speak things into existence, right? So going back to Genesis, um, God is speaking and things happen. And then if you look at John 1, Jesus is called the Word, the Word of God, the capital W Word, the Logos in Greek, the account, the reason, the, all of the things that are entailed in that Word so that he can actually speak and it happens and it takes place, right? Um, in fact, Luther at the Marburg Qualcomm in 1529, he's arguing with Zwingli about, about this very issue. And, uh, and then he, he keeps referring to what Luther says about this is my body and Luther's contention for the real presence. Finally, at one point, he gets frustrated and he scratches it in Latin in the table. So all of our confirmation students through the years are just imitating Luther, right? They're just not doing it very well because they're writing their names instead of parts of scripture like they should be. But um, but we'll work on it. They'll get there. So what they should write is what Luther wrote, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And so Zwingli and Luther are going back and forth and then Luther just keeps pointing, you know, this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said. Um, Someone once said that when he was in the Last Supper, when Jesus said, this is my body, he, wasn't, he was pointing to himself as opposed to the bread and the wine that he was giving. Oh. Which, yeah, so he's saying, this is my body. All right. But it, that doesn't seem, why would he do that? Because yeah. <laughs> they can see him. Right. We, he would have no need to do that, and that's not what the text seems to say, but it's an interesting, interesting theory nonetheless. Um, there's such a freedom in just accepting, like, yep. I'm sorry, I don't know your name down there, but you really said it well. I'm James. James, okay. Um, you know, and not having to understand everybody's boxes, you know, because my right. things that I put, my boxes that I put things in are different than other people's boxes, and I don't have to worry about anybody's boxes or my boxes. Just, there's a freedom in just accepting understand it. Right. And a God that you could fully understand wouldn't be a very good God. Right. right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. That's um, I, Aquinas, Augustine, I get it mixed up, but if see comprehendius non est deus. If you can understand it, what you are thinking of is not God. Can you say that in Latin one more time? See <laughs> comprehendius non est deus. Comprehendus. Okay, yeah. If, if I'm thinking of something and I can understand it with my human brain, it's not God. Right. 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 Which is what you said earlier. Yeah. All right. Well, let's look at the outline then, and we'll just kind of back up to what we were talking about with. <laughs> you got me with the Latin. I just yeah. did not see that coming. <laughs> Four years in Catholic high school. There you go. There you go. Oh, right there. Okay, yeah. Right. Um, what was I okay. Um, sacraments and the means of grace. Then God's grace and promise, tied to a visible elements, we defined it that way, must be instituted by Jesus, at least in our definition um, of what a what a sacrament is. So two or three, baptism, Lord's Supper, and possibly um, confession and absolution or disabsolution. Um, so what is the sacrament of the altar? The, here's how Luther defines it in the Catechism: the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ 
under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and drink. So the true body, the, the very body and blood, the real presence, uh, we might say, of our Lord Jesus Christ under or in with and under, if you want to add prepositions that help to illustrate it, but don't fully define it because you can't really wrap your mind around the mystery. Uh, in with and under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself uh, for us Christians to eat and to to drink. Um, so that's Luther's definition in the, in the sacrament of the altar or for the Lord's Supper about um, what uh, what it actually is. And of course we should uh, I guess maybe take a brief digression and talk about names which is how many names can we come up with for the Lord's Supper? What are the most common ones we call it? Communion. Communion, that's probably the most common. Eucharist. Uh, the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving, right? So uh, I was never clear. We are the ones giving thanks, I think. Is that the understanding of... It tends to be that Roman Catholics call it Eucharist, um, which host. is interesting because it's a... What's up? Host. Yeah, so the host is actually the bread, yeah. right? Right. Um, and uh, and it's kind of it's the idea is in with and under the bread is hosting Christ in a way, even though it also is Christ, right? Uh, I, um, I go a lot farther back. Than the other people You're here. pre-Vatican too, yeah. right? Yeah. Where yeah. <laughs> the host was all we got. Right. So yeah. communion in one kind. Right. Right. Yeah. right. right. There was no wine. The priests drank the wine. <laughs> but the congregation didn't. Right. Correct. Was that like uh, because in human flesh there is blood in the flesh that you eat, so you didn't also need the no, wine? No, it's because the nun said that's what you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the explanations yeah. given. It yeah. wasn't For, that long ago is that, right? that Catholics just changed, did they? To I don't know. Because I, I, I remember also. When I went, also, to, went to college, yeah. my mom said I could go my own way. So. <laughs> <laughs> and at the behest uh, of my future father-in-law, I knew which way I was going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but up to that point, it was we just received the And then yeah. they, they they came up with that came up with, but it used to be that only the priest could give you communion. But then they had right. too many people, and they did the Eucharistic minister, right. which is kind of like our lay minister a little bit. Right. Right. But so, their only job was to give communion. Yeah, the communion one kind is very interesting. There was a there was a real, um, they're almost developed throughout the Middle Ages, and you can kind of understand how this would happen. Although I don't I don't like talking about this that much because it plays into some of the misconceptions of the Middle Ages that everyone was an idiot and superstitious and all of that. Like we don't have people running today around. Everyone's into astrology. That seems to be really much more popular in the last five years among young people? Am I getting, am I wrong in thinking that? No. Am I, is that accurate? I, I don't know. I haven't it seems it to be right. much more prevalent yeah. than, and I don't know what that's in reaction to. Hmm. People are looking for some kind of spirituality without uh, religion, I guess I'll put it that way. And so astrology seems like a way to have that. In any case, I don't think we're any more intelligent today than, than they were thousand years ago we just have access to more information um, but there was a lot there was a lot of superstition around the sacrament um, sometimes people would take hosts home 
and you know nail them above the doorway to ward off the evil spirits. Mm. Well, that's kind of a superstitious use mm. of the sacrament. Um, if you're worried about evil spirits in your home, get the get the priest started to a house blessing. You know, <laughs> that's, what, that's what holy water is for. Yeah. yeah, or holy water, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, but Jesus said, "Take and eat." He didn't say, "Take it home and nail it to your door." But then they were worried about people um, people abusing the sacrament, right? And so then they would limit it to the bread so that people wouldn't spill the wine, um, right? So these gross peasants, and they're going to come in and try and drink the wine, and maybe they're going to drink too much because they like the wine, or maybe they're going to spill it on the carpet or something like that. So now only the priest, only the priest can do it. And one of the reasons they said was that in human flesh, if you take any piece of human flesh, it'll have blood in it. So I'll say, well, you know, you're kind of actually getting too... Both kinds in just the bread, anyway, right? Mm. Um, and I've seen where they dip the host in the wine. Yes, in tinctures. Yeah. yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. Um, we had done that. Did we do that during COVID when we first came back? We might have done that when we were really trying to be careful and said, "Well, taint all the wafers and just put them on your tongue." Um, and so nobody, no lay people had to touch anything. That didn't last very long. Thankfully, <laughs> and you couldn't. That's another thing about taking it directly on your tongue. You were not to handle it in your hands. Right. Did, you, did you're up that way, Gene? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you. Yeah. And there are people who still do that, yeah. and that's a um, a fine a fine practice. But they made it a they made it a rule where it shouldn't have been a rule, right? Mm -hmm. You have. Oh, well, one of the things you guys were talking about the the Catholic communion and the the wine and. You were talking about people spilling the wine. One of the things I thought was really funny about watching the Eucharist and all the Catholic services I had to sit through in school was that the uh, all of the wine has to be drank. So if not very many people take the common cup, then like the priest is up there, we're all singing, and he's like, he's still, yeah, he's, and you can like see him kind of like get his nerve up. He's like, all right, big one here. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he has to drink it all too. Right, right, right. Yeah. I thought yeah. they just liked it. Yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> <laughs> well, there is I had a, no idea there was a real reason for that. Yeah, yeah. I think the reason yeah. is yeah. if it's consecrated, and they want to maintain it as being set apart for that use and right. finish it within the service, right? So, gotcha. um, what we do, and I'd have to check with our resident altar guild folks here. Right. Do we pour it down the piscina, or it goes, it, down, the it goes down the piscina? So, mm -hmm. um, and for if you don't know, a piscina is a drain that goes straight into the ground. Yes. Um, so it doesn't we, go into the store. We should take a class field trip to our altar building closet. Yeah. Um, we have the regular sink that goes into the into the regular the sewer line. Sewer line, mm -hmm. right? And then there's a piscina that goes straight into the earth. Mm -hmm. The idea is to honor the the body and blood of Christ that's been mm -hmm. set apart by returning it to the earth in a reverent way. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. it's not to be superstitious about Jesus will be really angry if you spill his body and blood a little bit, right? We should clean it up, we should be reverent, but Jesus can take care of himself, right? Right. Um, that kind of thing. So what is it in the Catholic Church, the people would go, the adoration? Uh, Eucharistic adoration. Yeah. Yes. What? I never did it, but I know family members did. I don't know right. exactly what it means. You, uh, and this will, you'll sometimes see this in Catholic churches. So Eucharistic adoration is a set time to have the Eucharist that is present upon an altar, and usually they'll do it in a side chapel or a basement chapel if they have them. And then you will pray with the idea is to pray with Jesus present, huh. right? And so, 
Um, well, I'll pause there and ask anybody yeah. see any issue with that or what's well, yeah, good we or bad. We pray with Jesus. I mean, he's present everywhere when we pray. Like right here. <laughs> it's kind of like idol worship. It can yeah. become that, yeah, yeah. And it can kind of lead to a superstitious yeah. understanding of it. Okay. Um, and also oh. it's, it's, you know, the instruction is not to take and worship. Or, you know, Corpus Christi processions will oh, the yeah. parade parade the elements. Yes. Um, yes. You can see where there's a deep reverence and a love for the Lord's Supper and what Christ has, has given us, but it's not what Christ told us to do with it. Right. So there's yeah. kind of there is kind of a biblical argument of saying what Christ said was to take and eat. Yeah. Right. Not to take and parade, not mm-hmm. to take and nail above your wall, not to take and adore yeah. um, in, in adoration. There is there is also so in addition to drinking the wine, um, there is the the they'll put it in what's called a monstrance. Them too. Right, so the big usually they're they're they're, so they're some kind of stand, and then there's right. usually some kind of star where they'll yeah. place the host yes. in. Right? Yes, right. yes, yes. Maybe that's what I was covered. thinking of. Yeah, right. yeah, and that's called a tabernacle. tabernacle. So right. monstrance is more to display it. A tabernacle is more to contain it right. for the next time. So that's going back, of course. That language goes back to the Old Testament language of the tabernacle, right? Was where God's presence was for ancient Israel. Now. Part of the ironic thing is that is that God, I mean, your point, Sharon, about now now God is present or desires to make His presence everywhere. God chose to be present for ancient Israel in one place, in the tabernacle, then in the temple, then with Jesus. And, and if you think about the kind of imagery and how this not symbolism, it's more than symbolism, but how it worked, you had to make certain sacrifices in order to be pure and holy enough to enter the most holy place, to enter the God's presence in the tabernacle. Now with Jesus, then the equation is kind of reversed. You come to the altar and Jesus is actually giving his holiness to you, right? Just like happened when Jesus was on earth and he was touching people and cleaning them, or, you know, cleansing them of their their sins or their impurities or healing them, whatever it was. Instead of God's presence being located in one place, that you had to purify yourself before you could access. Now in the person of Jesus, God himself is walking around and healing people. Now the same thing happens at every every Christian altar where there is the Lord's Supper. Right? So God almost it's like God teaches the Israelites a way of thinking so that he can deliberately reverse it, if that makes sense. Um, which is another part about Roman Catholic theology would say it's a it's a Eucharistic. Well, I have it somewhere here. Five. Five. Uh, it is not an offering to God, an unbloody sacrifice, as the Roman Catholic Church would say, but rather God's offering to us, Christ giving Himself to us. Um, okay. I'll pause there and ask any questions. Already burning through time, but that's okay. Uh, so the sacrament of the altar, the true body of blood. What's well, a biblical precedent? There, are, of course, the the accounts of the first three are the accounts of the actual Lord's Supper. Um, John six is the bread of life discourse, which some people, even some Lutherans, will say is about communion, and some will say it is not about communion. Um, I tend to think it is about communion, but that's a kind of different. We don't really need to get into that. First Corinthians 10 and 11 is Paul talking to the Corinthians and all of the problems they had in their Eucharistic fellowship, uh, that some were, were 
left hungry, they were treating it like a potluck, and some were hungry, some were drunk, all kinds of issues, weren't examining themselves, weren't treating with reverence. Uh, and that's also where he says, is not the body that you eat a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the blood you drink a real participation uh, in, in the blood of Christ? Right. So that's kind of the main places where we'll look in the Bible about, about the, the Lord's Supper. So number four should not be a question mark. <laughs> yeah. It should just be a period. So if you have your whiteout, go ahead and fix that for me. That'd be great. Uh, the whiteout that you inevitably keep in your pocket to fix all kinds of errors. Right? And number five A, the altar should be spelled with an A. So apparently I wasn't having a very good afternoon. I don't know what was going on. Uh, so what's the significance of the name the sacrament of the altar? Well, of course, the altar is a place where Israelites, even going back before the Israelites, even to Abraham, would offer their sacrifices to God. Uh, to make themselves pure and holy before him. And now God reverses it. And God offers himself to us and continues to give himself to us in, with, and under the bread and wine. So, and I don't know, how much do, do Roman Catholics today talk about um, the kind of unbloody sacrifice of the Mass and it's, it's being offered or, they say, re, re-presented to, the, to God, right? My many Catholic friends don't talk about it. I don't okay. ever hear that term. And I and I and I could be wrong. I, I in general, my feeling is that there's a there's a difference. In some ways, there's a bigger difference from Roman Catholic dogma and what the Church actually teaches than how it's received by Roman Catholic lay people. That that, yeah. that the difference is actually greater for one reason or another than it is in other church bodies. I could be wrong. Um, so something like Mary being not just the mother of, of God, Theotokos, but also the co-redemptress, that Mary herself is responsible for part of redemption, which is not official Catholic dogma yet anyway, but, but a lot of people talk, talk that way. When they have the Holy Days um, of Obligation, which is what we call it like, and every no. Sunday is a day of obligation. No, right? you know, well, every Sunday is, but they also had special days like the Ascension and okay. and so on and so forth that we had to go to church. There was eight or were eight or nine, but one was the Immaculate Conception. Right. right. And the Immaculate Conception, it was believed by most Catholic lay people, was um, the conception of Mary without right. sin, right. as opposed to well, yeah they. Mary didn't have original sin, but that wasn't right. what, yeah, I don't remember what it's supposed to be or which Right, is well, yeah, I think the Immaculate Conception, that phrase refers to the Immaculate Conception, not of Jesus, but of Mary. Yeah. So Mary is without sin. So that's sin. Catholic doctrine. I think so, yes. Yeah. But other Marian doctrines wouldn't necessarily be, but might be believed on the ground. Mm-hmm. Even though some, you know, even Roman Catholic theologians might differ among themselves about what, what Mary's do. role exactly is. I just know we had to go to church. It was sometime in August. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and to the point of the tabernacle, that is that is the reason that they will articulate that Mary must have been immaculately conceived without original sin, is because just as the tabernacle had to be made made of pure burnished gold. What's the word burnished mean? I'm not a metallurgist, so purified, right? Couldn't be gold with any impurities in it. Just like the tabernacle had to be pure for the presence of God, so Mary had to be pure and, and, and okay, to receive Jesus. To receive okay. Jesus, which kind of runs against the grain, because I think, well, but 
Jesus walked around purifying other people. Right. You know, yeah. so why? Yeah. Mary Jesus yeah. wasn't going to, Jesus can take care of himself. He's not going to be contaminated by Mary's sinfulness, right? Yeah. And he's also not conceived of Joseph, so it's, it's you know, anyway. Um, so the Feast of the Immaculate Conception is regarding Mary? Yes. Oh, I know. Not I Jesus, know. right? Yeah. Which is interesting. Cause I, I, you yeah. know, I, I heard, I thought the same thing, Sharon. Yeah. It must be about mm -hmm. Jesus being immaculately conceived by the right. Holy Spirit. It's yeah. about Mary. Mary, Mary uh, by Saint. No, yeah, Saint Anne. I always thought it was about Jesus. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. If I, I don't want to go down the Mary thing. We got the stuff to talk about. <laughs> instead of Catholic, so. It's relevant. Tabernacle. Well, you know, Mary, yeah. Yeah. Lord's Supper. It's all fits. Well, if they're saying that she had to be pure of sin to be Jesus's mother, then right. that would necessitate that right. she lived mm -hmm. without sin and never right. sinned until at least right. he was born. Right, yeah. and even after, I think, would be mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. yeah. conception that she even died without sin. And she's she's not only immaculately conceived, but she's assumed into heaven. Right. So there's the this assumption of Mary right. that she did not die. Yeah. She was taken so just like a whole body and soul brought up to heaven. I had, I had a friend from high school that I met like a couple years later. He's like, yeah, I went to Greece and we saw the location of the Assumption. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, oh yeah, well, yeah. Mary ascended into heaven and I just like let him have I, right. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say anything. I was like, well, like I don't want in a conversation with somebody on the street them to give me a lot of grief about believing that Jesus ascended into heaven so I'm not going to give him grief right. about Mary going into heaven. But I, I was like, I, I paid attention in theology class for four years and I never remember anybody saying that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the assumption of Mary into heaven might be a good one. Where I don't know that that's actual Catholic dogma, official mm -hmm. Catholic teaching, but it's believed in. It was a holy day of obligation. It was. <laughs> yes, the assumption it was. was. Yes, yeah. it was. Then it yeah. probably is. Okay, yeah. I am mistaken. I yeah, apologize about that. Yeah. Well, if yeah. Mary was without sin, then her mother, you should have been without sin. No. Yeah. How far up the chain do you have to go? That's one logical question. We have Jesus is human and God. So if Mary's without sin, where's the human part come in? Good question. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> all right. <Continue>. <laughs> <laughs> move on. Move on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the all the Mary stuff is interesting. Exactly. But I do That's know. Fine. But I do know that you're encouraged you know. to pray to Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Because right. Mary then takes it to right. the Lord. Right. And to be, you know, to be fair to Roman Catholics, I don't think we have enough appreciation right. for Mary as right. okay. someone who hears the word of right. God and responds in faith. Well, if you're the mother That's, of God, you're pretty high on the right. <laughs> right. And, and Luther makes this point about yeah. her in the Magnificat, especially right. what a what a wonderful prayer of faith. Right. Just like just like Hannah in the Old Testament, right? And the Magnificat yeah. is probably Mary knew Hannah's prayer in First mm -hmm. Samuel, and and the Holy Spirit inspires her to sing this prayer as. Recorded for us so the Magnificat. So what all, a, the, all the women chosen in the Bible, Mary. Right, and the grief she experiences, right? A sword right. will pierce through your heart also, right. and all of the beautiful art about yep. you know, the Pieta yes. with with Mary weeping and, and holding her her broken son, right? Um, so we probably don't pay enough attention to Mary as an example of faith. Right. Which is where Luther will go most of the time with the old with, with people in the Bible. You know, they're Examples of sinners that God forgives, and there are examples of people who hear the word of God and believe. Right? Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, 
Second, the altar, God is serving us. Jesus is giving himself at the altar for us. How often should we receive the sacrament? It's a good question and not one which scripture directly addresses. It should be often. God desires to give us the full multitude of his gifts. I'm assuming that Roman Catholics have it every single Sunday. Is that right? Every day is a... Every Mass. Every Sunday every is Sunday. a Mass, yeah. right? Um, and during the Reformation, they kind of kept that, right? Um, now, when they get to this country... Lutherans in this country have the problem of being spread out on the American frontier. So because things are should be done in good order and a pastor should be the one to consecrate the elements, then they don't have it every every Sunday necessarily, per se, and they might even have it kind of once a quarter. Luther somewhere writes in something about he can't imagine a Christian who would take the Lord's Supper, I think he says, fewer than four times a year. And because Luther said that in some off-handed <laughs> comment, it was taken as gospel. And there are still people who grow up, you know, older folks who will only take it four times a year. Because that was the tradition and that's what we did growing up, right? So, uh, and if that's our conscience, you know, uh, I think you should take it every Sunday if you can, right? It's a, multitude of, it's a multiplicity of God's gifts for us. Why not receive it? Um, but that is a uh, strongly held belief based on how they they uh, they grew up, right? And there was a, a real moment, I mean, thinking about being in some out-of-the-way place like, I don't know, Nebraska, you know, where there's no civilization for miles and miles, and you got to wait with your fellow German farmers, and you're trying to survive, and who knows when a pastor's going to get to you, and then uh, that's kind of how it, how it would take place. Um, so... Yeah, any thoughts, comments, questions? When did Lord of Life move to every Sunday? I think we've been back and forth. Yeah. I think we're every Sunday, then every other, then just at 8 o'clock, then just at 10.30. Um, I, it wasn't that long ago that we, I don't think, that it we moved. Yeah, that we moved to every Sunday. Past memories. Anybody well, it know? was every Sunday. It just depended on which service you right. You could yeah. go at 8 o'clock right. this Sunday following Sunday if you went at 10.30. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. 8 o'clock. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. First and third. Yeah. First right. and third. Second and fourth. Right. 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 And there is, um, sometimes you'll hear uh, a response to every Sunday communion saying, doesn't that make it less special? And I guess I have done it both ways at different congregations. My field work in the city, we did it every Sunday. Um, when I grew up, it was every other Sunday. I have not Found that it makes it seem any less significant to me, but I don't know what anybody that has moved from uh, every other Sunday to every Sunday. Do you find that it makes it seem less significant or not? No, no. Okay. I'd say often as possible. Right, and I think that if you use the analogy of a relationship, right? Um, okay, if you go on a date with your spouse every month, that's good. I think most people say every week would probably be better. I don't know. I have kids, so I don't get it every week. <laughs> but if you if you do it, if you have a date night every week, let me know if it's great. Um, I have young kids, so that doesn't happen for me. I, I would say it has to do with the person's preparation. Yeah. Yes. If if you're truly prepared to receive the gifts, mm -hmm. then it can be meaningful every Sunday. Yes. If you're not prepared and you're just doing it because the usher says it's time for you to go, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
okay, maybe the 53rd time it didn't, doesn't seem right. So I, I, think, right. I think it's more about being prepared and, and knowing what you're getting yourself into. Yes, and preparation uh, is a good thing. And you're going to have a hymnal here. Uh, but if you look at the inside cover of your hymnal the next time you're in church, you'll see the questions for it. Um, preparation and Paul's idea that you can examine yourself, that uh, you ought to examine yourself, which is why we wouldn't give communion to say to say infants or very young children, because where is the line of yours that you can really examine yourself, as Paul says, and then recognize the body, um, which is not just the body of Christ, the real presence in the suburb, but also the body of Christ, the church. So recognizing both. Um, this is why we do confirmation at a later age, although you can make an argument we could make it earlier. We could separate First Communion from confirmation, as some, some Lutherans do, and, and that's, uh, in some ways I can see that argument. I think that could be a good thing. But um, whether or not you can examine yourself and prepare, uh, you know, recognize, recognize sin, recognize need. Luther says someone who's truly worthy, who trusts and believes in these words in with are given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin so a recognition of a need for forgiveness and that Christ is really present um, where was I going with that so it could be that somebody's heart could be could become indifferent to the gift being offered how often versus being prepared right right yeah that's being prepared is the right way to do it right Right, so there's the questions for preparation, there's the inside part of the bulletin. I think part of being prepared is I want to rather than I have to. Right. You know, I mean, outside of the, you know, silent moments. Yeah, yeah I recall if it was in a Bible class or your sermon where you spoke about saying the Lord's Prayer and slow it down. That was Bible, Bible class. class. Bible yeah, Sunday. yeah. Because you can get into, like, the Lord's Prayer and just mm-hmm. zoom through it. Off, it. Yeah. And your suggestion was do it slower uh-huh. and put some thought behind it. Same thing with communion. Don't do it fast. Do it slowly. Be right. Right. And yeah, to 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 see what God is doing there, and not only that He's giving these gifts to you, but also the connection that you have to all your your fellow church members and with and through the sacrament uh, as well. I mean, you really got to understand what communion is. And what else serious it is, and and don't lessen, don't don't lessen that by not being prepared and right and, and taking communion when you're when you really shouldn't, you know. Yeah, and so that's a really interesting personal question. What would constitute somebody who shouldn't take communion? Um, now that's at the bottom of the page there um, about closed communion, which is a whole ball of wax. We're not really going to have time for. Ah, shucks. Too bad. Too bad. All right. Um, Let me just rip through these these questions seven and down, and we'll try and get to the closest communion thing in the last ten minutes. So how often should we receive the sacrament? There's no rule. It's Christian freedom. We do it every week because we both fit God's gifts. You do run the risk that, that, and again, it's a personal thing. that somebody might take the gift for granted. That's always a possibility, right? Um, couldn't it just be symbolic? Why should we believe that it's the true body and blood? We take Jesus at his words. Paul speaks of the Eucharist as a participation in the body and blood of Christ. In church tradition, the fathers, church fathers, speak of the real presence of Christ. There's the idea of the accusation of cannibalism. And the rejoinder to that accusation is not that it's just a symbol. Um, 
So what do we receive in the supper? What We might say what benefits or what's the point of receiving the true body and blood of Christ? We receive the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Now, does everyone receive these benefits then? We say, no, like baptism, the benefits are then received through faith. Sharon, you look... I'd, I'd like you to comment on that. Okay. Line B. <laughs> Unbelievers do receive the true body and blood of Christ, though not to their benefits. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that some have taken it to their damnation. Right. And that taking the Lord's Supper has even caused some of them to die. Um, the idea being that Jesus is really there, and if you're unrepentant, you can receive it. You actually receive Jesus, but it's not to your benefit. It becomes a further condemnation on you. Because not only are you unrepentant and stuck in, I don't know, you're rejecting the Holy Spirit, you're in whatever sin you're in, but now you're despising the body and blood of Christ. So this is, if you want to know the fancy Latin word, it's called the mandicatio impiorum. So mandicatio, to mandicate something, is to choose something. So the eating of the impiorum, the impious, the unclean. And this is actually an element of law and gospel in a way. Because if the unbeliever does not actually receive Jesus, it turns the Lord's Supper into a game of, am I good enough to receive Jesus today? But if Jesus is objectively present there for me, then everyone's going to get it. But those who are not in a fit state to receive Jesus still receive him and if they don't have faith they receive it to their further condemnation I'll put it that way does that make sense a couple weeks ago you had a passage on here that was really really good about the young man who was at Yale Divinity School and the guest speaker came somebody asked him I don't believe that Mary was I, I don't believe in the virgin birth. Right. How can I say the Apostles' Creed knowing that? And the man said something along the lines of, fake it till you make it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How does that, you know, I've had yeah. this conversation yeah. with some of my Catholic friends in school and some right. of my other friends, like, how, how does that, like, somebody who truly wants to believe this and wants to be part of the faith community, right. but maybe can't completely reconcile this yet? My first response is I can't, I don't want to respond. <laughs> because I, I think that would be an individual question of, of, of that person. Um, so I would say something like the eating of the unclean would be primarily somebody who's in a, uh, uh, either openly rejecting the faith or in, a, in some kind of really harmful, um, unrepentant sin. Uh so I want to kind of make that more extreme and not suggest that anybody coming to... So I, I don't want it to you to hear that, okay, so anybody at Lord of Life might be coming to the altar and receiving into their damnation kind of thing. So my one thought is to say somebody who is praying like, who's the guy in the Gospels? I believe, help my unbelief, right? Which especially in 2023... When we have more access than we ever have to other worldviews, other philosophical systems, um, 
when we're so th thoroughly soaked in the in naturalism, that is, we really, at a base level, believe that material is all there is, as a kind of society and culture in the West, um, that that's going to be natural. So there's obviously a spectrum, and I can't make a, I wouldn't make a blanket rule of saying, if you can't 100% say that you believe in the real presence, you will automatically take it to your damnation. So what's worthy, in a way, is knowing you're unworthy and knowing you need Jesus. And even if you don't have all of your ducks in a row, Jesus is still there for you. Which is, to the, to the closed communion question, my fear is that sometimes in the Lutheran Church, in the Missouri Synod especially, in the last 20, 30, 40 years especially, that we've made it largely a matter of cognition. I know the right ten things, and now I'm good enough for the Lord's Supper, which is not really what it's about, right? You, you should be able to recognize the body and blood of Christ, trust that he's there for you, um, but you don't need to be able to have all your ducks in a row, if I can put it that way. So I, I'm going to cheat, in a way, and say both things can be true, <laughs> that yes... Fake it till you make it, everyone struggles with unbelief, especially now, right? But also, if you're in a really harmful spiritual state, then you can take it to your damnation, and you shouldn't. Right? So there's been one time, and I shouldn't get too personal, there's been one time in the past five years that I've been offered communion, or I was attending church on a Sunday. No, I was actually, it was at my previous parish. Um, and I didn't take communion that Sunday because I was really angry with someone, and I needed to fix that situation before I felt like I could, and that's before I felt like I could take communion, right? Um, which is Jesus' point about if, if, you're, if you're coming to the altar and you have a quarrel with your brother, fix that first and then come offer your sacrifice, right? Um, but that was more a matter of my, uh, my sin rather than a belief in the true presence, if I can put it that way. Now, if somebody's really struggling to believe the true presence, that does not automatically mean they shouldn't take it. I'll put it that way. Well, the Holy Spirit's still working, right? Yes. I mean, he's there working too, Yes. Right? So, some Despite our best efforts and my best efforts to get in his way, <laughs> he's, he's the one in charge, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, someone could take it and not quite be there, but the Holy Spirit could be and helping him fake until he makes it. Yes. So what does Luther say about, if you have your catechism, let's, let's look there. What is worldly reception number 10 um, and examining yourself? Uh, let's see where we're at. Uh, that is on page 338, if you're following along. Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. But that person is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith in these words uh, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And Luther says anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared for the words for you require all hearts to believe. And the rub there is what exactly constitutes doubting them. And that's a problem I don't think I can solve in principle, but I have to solve with a concrete example with a, a real human person right in front of me to, saying here are my doubts, you tell me type of thing, right? And working that out with them individually. 
but yes, the Holy Spirit is still at work. Everyone is, is saying, everyone in a sense can rightly pray, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Right. Thoughts, comments, questions there. Um, but notice, of course, worthily, worthiness is in the first place primarily a matter of being unworthy because it's about faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That you actually need the forgiveness. That Jesus actually wants to give you that. right? So it's not as though being worthy is a matter of acquiring some amount of knowledge, although knowledge is good. And in our tradition, we typically say that you should have a certain <coughs> amount of knowledge right? Um, to, to have an understanding of what's going on. And you should recognize the body, as Paul says. Um, Emotions are good. If you feel warm and fuzzy as you receive Jesus, that's how he wants you to feel. But if those aren't there, that's okay too, right? The Holy Spirit will bring your emotions along at some point. Um, but faith, trust in these words that it's given and shed uh, for you. Okay. I guess we have five minutes to tackle closed communion. <laughs> Uh, if you look at your catechism on 342, who should not be given the sacrament? Um, this is helpful in a way, although we could spend five Bible studies talking about close communion and everything that that means. Um, so who should not be given the sacrament? A, those who are not Christian or who are not baptized yet. Um, baptism is the new birth, rebirth into the faith, and then the Lord suffers food for the journey, right? So baptism should always be the first step. In the early church, that was how it works. The Easter vigil, Saturday night, um, you would be baptized if you were if you were a catechumen, if you were learning, and then Sunday morning you'd receive your first, uh, first Eucharist, first Lord's Supper and Easter. Um, B, those Christians who are unable to examine themselves, such as infants and very young children, people who have not received proper instruction in the Christian faith or the un unconscious, right? So so first off, there's kind of an idea that it doesn't, it's not magic. It's not, it doesn't, it's not intended to work apart from faith. The same reason that we um, wouldn't spray people with water and baptize them is the same reason we wouldn't simply give out bread, you know, you don't you wouldn't go to the homeless shelter, consecrate all the bread, and have them handed out, right? That's not what God intends. It's not what God wants. Um, so, unable to examine themselves, infant praying children, people who have not yet received proper instruction. C, those Christians of a different confession of faith since the Lord's Supper is a testimony to our unity in faith and doctrine. And this is where it gets really kind of controversial in a way. Um, there's a whole host of reasons for this. One of them is to say that saying that we shouldn't commune with people of a different confession or different church body is in no way a kind of judgment upon their faith or even a judgment upon an individual's faith. Part of it is a recognition of the historical, the historic uh, divides between church bodies. In that for the past 500 years, church bodies have been uh, divided, we would say regrettably, 
This isn't what Jesus intends for his church. Jesus intends, John 17, for the whole church to be united on earth and united in, in, in truth and confession and what we proclaim. But that's not the historical reality of it. In light of that historical reality, then, um, because the Lord's Supper is not just about an individual's relationship with Jesus, but also an individual's relationship with their church, uh, then it's not appropriate for us to commune with members of different Christian denominations. Um, now, some people assume that this is going to be really, I guess, offensive if we deny people communion. I don't know that it is. Um, or maybe I've, I've not talked to people who have been offended by that. I don't know. Um, any thoughts, comments, questions there? I was always of the belief it was not the word closed with a D. It was just close. Yes. There was a we, note on that on 343. It's a footnote down at the bottom. Yeah. See, well, you, I, you got my book. My understanding is that that's a difference without a real distinction. That is to say they're used interchangeably, close and closed. Um, some Lutherans, and I understand where they're coming from, will say, well, if somebody believes in the real presence, I don't have a right to refuse them communion, even if they're from a different denomination, because that's the marker, is those who believe that Jesus is really present versus those who don't. I understand that perspective. I think you do actually have to account for the history and the way I'll phrase it is. It's not a judgment of, it's in no way a judgment of a person's faith. I think sometimes it's received that way. Um, my thinking on this is I am not in the position here to ignore the past 500 years of history and act like those things haven't happened. So it's partially a historical judgment in my mind saying that traditionally, historically, this has been seen as a, as a boundary marker between churches. Um, you know, in Luther's day, and up until 1648, in the end of the Thirty Years' War, which actually lasted for 30 years, which is very helpful, it wasn't just that we don't want to commune with our neighbors over here in this town is that we're actually going to go to war over it. Right. So the idea that you, a Lutheran, would walk into any other church and assume that you could receive communion would be would be inconceivable. To quote, what's that movie? Princess oh, Bride. Right. Yeah, yeah. Inconceivable. Right. right? right. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to happen. Uh, America makes things very different because America is. There's, I mean, there's even after Luther dies and everybody thinks of Luther's two kingdoms being the separation of church and state, there's still a very strong alliance between church and state where you have a Lutheran prince and you have Lutheran churches and the entire region is generally Lutheran or Catholic or Reformed. And there's not as much intermingling. Obviously, you come to America and it's all thrown together. Even though you have, uh, the very beginning of the American experiment, you have strong kind of church-state alliances. Where is it? that they were paying, I think, South Carolina, where they paid clergy salaries out of the public taxes, oh. right? So that even happened in America? Um, Lord Baltimore was Catholic, so Maryland was going to be the Catholic colony, right? Maryland. Um, yeah, Maryland, right. Yeah, so uh, it's only once you actually get to the time of the Declaration of Independence and you have the No Establishment Clause, and then it's kind of a free-for-all. 
Then you move to the West, and it doesn't even matter, right? <laughs> if you're in Nebraska, you can make up whatever you want because no one's going to stop you in Nebraska. It's a lawless country, right? So um, Americans think kind of differently in part because we're Americans. It's all good. Um, so churches have a different confession. And then D, uh those who are ungodly and unrepentant, living contrary to God's word. Uh, there you can see the, the lines from 1 Corinthians. And then E, those who are unforgiving, refusing to be reconciled with their neighbors. And I guess that would be my reason for not communing that Sunday, is I had not yet been reconciled. Uh, and I felt that on my conscience and decided that I should not should not commune. Um, okay. Yeah, Linda? Just a quick question. If, if uh, a member uh, is going to go to communion, they have family visiting them. They didn't invite their family to have communion with them, but the sister or the brother got up and proceeded to the altar with everybody else. Right. If you didn't know this person, are you going to administer communion? to that person? Yes. Uh, so typically, if I don't know, based on, I mean, what happens here is we have a bulletin statement that says our belief in the front. And then if people, I especially for 1030 service, I would love to be out there and greeting people and checking everything. Obviously, I'm yammering on too much in Bible study, and I never make it in time. So, and then people can come in after the service already starts. So my, my, um, Practice and someone maybe quibble with this is to assume that that they have read the bulletin statement, they understand our belief, and that if they present uh, for communion, I will give them communion and try and talk to them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that doesn't happen all the time, mm -hmm. right? I would think that some practicing Christians do, don't really understand the difference between denominations. Absolutely, and there's anything wrong with them doing it? I just wondered. Right. Been in situations. Oh, yeah, I've been in situations like that, and I would say to that that um, closed communion is a good practice and public confession, but of course it's going to happen where there perhaps is somebody communing who maybe ought not to be for the reason, and it's a genuine misunderstanding on their part, on my part, a lack of communication, those kind of things, that, that will happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. But they're still receiving body and blood mm -hmm. Christ. Yes, and, and I can go one further and say they might be receiving it. They might believe in the real presence and it might be to their benefit to, to the point where I would say the, maybe the only reason they shouldn't is because of the history and the, dom, the, the denominations mm -hmm. that we have and the way that we've, we've structured this. Mm -hmm. That maybe it's a, it's um, how would I say it? Maybe it's a regrettable fact of history that they shouldn't commune with us. Right, but it's still a fact of history, mm -hmm. and I can't, I can't override that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the greeters, when if we have people that come mm -hmm. that that are visitors, they'll point out mm -hmm. that inside right. the inside the bulletin is a yeah. paragraph, and yeah, mm -hmm. if you have any questions, you know, mm -hmm. talk to pastor afterwards. Sure. Or yeah. So, yeah. I've received communion in a Catholic church. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I go to church with my family or something in the past and I never thought that I was sinning by having receiving communion in the Catholic Church even though I had been Lutheran for a while. Right and um, here's why I would say sometimes we talk too much about sin and I would say this is true about the because the, the, sometimes it's 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 um, 
<laughs> How do I put this without criticizing any fellow clergy? So I ask for your forgiveness and what I have to say if it's inappropriate. Sometimes we act, and clergy will talk about it though, as though if somebody who's not Lutheran communes on our altar, God will strike us down. <laughs> right. And I would, I would even say something on the lines of it might not even be a sin issue. Mm-hmm. It's just not the best practice, mm-hmm. given the history of what's happened, mm-hmm. and it's not the best public confession and testimony of, right. our, of our faith, right? Yeah. Right. And I would think that Catholics, Catholics should be saying that Lutherans should not commune, should not commune mm-hmm. at a Catholic church. But obviously, there's going to be the same issues between but priests don't always know, or it's, mm-hmm. and some Catholics have more open mm-hmm. communion policies. Mm-hmm. Y'all. I wouldn't do it anymore. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, even some Catholic churches have, I've heard of Catholic churches that have invited everybody, you know, doesn't matter if you're Catholic, yeah. come on up. And obviously Methodists, some of this. Methodists do that. Right. As far mm-hmm. as. And I think that, that makes a certain amount of sense. If it's a primarily symbolic understanding, mm-hmm. then it's about the individual's relationship and their perception of the symbols. If there's not a real participation, what's the harm? Mm-hmm. So, okay, you know, everybody. Um, or they'll pass it. Um, we, we attended a Presbyterian church in Korea. So once a month we'd go to Seoul and go to the Lutheran church. But on the other couple of weeks we'd go to the Presbyterian church, which is always a hoot because he'd preach for 45 minutes in Korean. It's really loud. <laughs> so we'd be bored out of our mind. But we're going there <laughs> to have some kind of you know fellowship, and they fed us noodles after every uh, service. It was delightful. Um, but they didn't have communion very much, but the one very, very, very wonderful old man who spoke great English and bought us these Korean English language hymnals, I could actually show you them. Um, he couldn't understand why we wouldn't take communion if we were baptized. Because that's, you know, if you're baptized, it's the next step, and, and you're Christian, why aren't you doing that? So we tried to pass the tray, and then he came over and pressed it into our hands. <laughs> so we said, okay, all right, we'll take it. You know, we, we get it. And, yeah. Yeah. Plain, plain devil's advocate here. Play it, yes. If we see the fragmentation of the earthly church uh-huh. as a manifestation of human sin, right? Right. We think, like, I firmly believe that Luther was absolutely doing something that needed to be done. Uh-huh. But things would be better if the church on earth was one united body. Uh-huh. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that so far. As long as it's Lutheran. No. <laughs> as long as they have their theology. Yeah. Right. 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 As long as they sorry. agree with us. Yeah. Oh. Come to our side of the fence and we'll all be together. Go ahead, I'm sorry. If, no, yeah. if, when we, if when we take communion, we are sharing in a meal almost transcendentally from a metaphysical standpoint with all of the believers currently, past, and future, uh-huh. and all the people up there in heaven. Right. Who were taking it before when there was only Roman Catholic right. and in right. the future, whatever denominations, isn't in the grand scheme of all that it a little bit petty to say we're going to deny people not on theological or faith-based means, but just because like there are more than one church body on earth right now. Yes, that is a very good argument against what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, And that is one of the more persuasive arguments that those who would posit a more open communion would hold to, um, is saying, okay, um, we need to not ignore the history, 
but the history of division should not keep us from whatever unity we can have. Therefore, we ought not to deny somebody um, uh, communion, right? Um, the and I would say, uh, and this is where I would the criticism of somebody from my perspective would say, you're leaning too much on on earthly structures of authorities, i.e church bodies agreeing formally about these kind of things before you recognize the reality of it. Um, the other thing I would say is that there's no emergency communion like there might be emergency baptism and that we don't necessarily need to commune together to have unity in a certain sense. So we can pray together, we worship the same God. Um, but there is a recognition that at least as far as the earthly, churchly authorities who have been given the job of working this out yet, they have not yet worked it out yet. And until that time comes, I don't think it's appropriate to commune together. But that argument of saying, um, listen, we all recognize it would be better. Uh, but then you could go and say, and I, I guess I'm presuming a visitor who would believe in the real presence as opposed to believing it's a symbol, right? And I do think that if they only can conceive of it as a symbol, then there is actually something to work through there. It, it, yeah. you, have to, you have to have your practices structured in a way that says, our theology matters. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But if somebody, I mean, this, this does present itself as a problem. Um, if somebody really does believe in presence, but they're not yet a member of the church, or they have a good reason for not being a member of the church, um, on what grounds would we not commune them? Um, well, there is the idea of the rest of the confession of faith, agreeing with our Lutheran confession, the public testimony, and also the, the historical reality. My fear is that sometimes that not communing is seen as a judgment on their faith, which I want to, like, they're somehow unworthy, whereas we're worthy, which I want to get away from. Yeah. And yeah. so part of my reason for articulating, and to me, nobody really talks about the historical argument that much. Maybe it's because Americans are, are not very historical. Um, but to me, that almost helps it to be a little bit less personal in saying it's not about you and your faith per se. It's about the historical reality of what's happened and what has not yet happened mm -hmm. as, a, as, as a churches have not achieved a, a, a unity yet. But I'm still thinking through some of these things and how best to articulate it. I, I tell you, I've, I've seen with other pastors really struggle yeah. with should this person be communing, maybe from a mental standpoint or physical standpoint. You know, yeah. And it, it, for a guy like you, that's got to be a tough, tough decision. So, yeah, and not just with people who come to the altar, but you're, you're thinking of, of shut-ins who yeah. maybe have Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah. Yes. And so if Paul talks about recognizing the body, how much are they still capable of doing that? On the other hand, we don't know. We don't know. Exactly. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. And Jesus is there for them. And yeah. so I tend to err on the side of, of giving it. Yeah. But I know pastors who will say if they can't if they can't speak clearly or express their faith, they won't. And I respect that position while I also hold to saying Jesus is there for them, even if they are losing their cognitive ability to recognize it. Again, they're still getting the body and blood of Christ. Right. And you don't want to negate the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Right. And if this is somebody that was a consistent believer for decades, right. yes. right. it's just because they've right. lost their power of speech. Right. Does it negate, right. yes, what right. they recognize or what their soul yeah. might even recognize beyond what we can tell right. on human terms? So a lot like what you're saying, my mother-in-law, she didn't even know if her husband right. in the end. But their pastor ones. said right. that, that I've known Alma for years, mm -hmm. and, uh -huh. and I'm not going to deny her. Right. You know. Right, right. Yeah. And that's where I would fall. So there's a way of, of some of these decisions as a pastor, even who communes at the altar, that's a way of, um, I don't want to say this because I never want to say I'm deliberately erring, <laughs> but erring on the side of the gospel and, and giving it to somebody I may not be sure about. If they, if they, if I, I presume they read the bulletin statement, understand what's going on, and present themselves at the altar, that they're in agreement with our teaching and they're Lutheran. I don't always know that. If they present, then I'll try and catch them afterwards. Um, and again, it's kind of the, the same issue of, of, you know, Jesus will take care of himself. People can bring harm to themselves through receiving communion, and so that's why you want to generally know. The other part of that is saying, just because you're Lutheran, right? It's almost like sometimes we treat it as like a membership card. Like, okay, you get your, <laughs> you get your, you get, 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 get confirmed. You get your Costco membership, then you swipe it on the way up to communion, and that's not how it's supposed to work. It's a living relationship. So there may be people who are members here who have things going on in their lives that they're not repented of or are unreconciled in one way who shouldn't be communing. And I don't know about that necessarily. God. It is right, and so it, that those those can happen. But just because you have been confirmed doesn't mean you're always in a right state. I'll put it that way. Okay, um, sorry we've taken so much time. <laughs> Any last thoughts, comments, questions? Um, just don't have any unrepentant sin and I won't have to think about excluding you from the altar, right? Yeah. It's the last part of confirmation class. Don't sin unrepentantly. If you sin, repent of it. Yeah. How about that? Um, does October 15th work for everybody? We'll have... Yes. You guys can be confirmed, you can confirm later and then... Um, but if you're there for the October 15th, that'd be great so we can introduce you and people can meet you at that kind of in-between hour so donuts danishes that kind of thing good good calories don't count if it's Sunday morning so um, any last comments thoughts questions concerns appreciated this class good good I'm glad I hope you found it uh, helpful and informative I um, appreciated it too Maybe good so. good very good Hopefully we stayed uh, somewhat true to what we were going to cover. It's always a risk, although it's all there in the catechism if you'd like to, to review any of it. So, very good. Well, Linda, I'm going to put you. I'm going to mute you. Um, whoops, I muted myself. I meant to mute you. Although I think I just asked you to mute. And then we'll pray the Lord's prayer, and then we'll be uh, we'll be done. I still can hear you. I'll mute you. Okay. All right. So uh, let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. I have a question that has nothing to do with this class. Oh boy. I was discussing it with Sharon 